Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today's episode is probably my favorite episode so far, and it is all due to my wonderful guest, Ray Hotoda, whose biography and resume are so expansive that it would be hard to do it justice here. Ray is now in her third year, uh, or third season, I should say, as the music director of the Fresno Philharmonic and has guest conducted all around the world. An accomplished conductor and pianist, Ray studied at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, and USC. This is a fantastic and fascinating conversation. Please enjoy it, and Baker will take us there. Religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. So, Ray, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Okay, there are two places that I really like. Um, one, I think it's just closing, is uh, one of my favorites is Tabashim. Okay. Um, and I think they had to close because of the pandemic, which is so uh, unfortunate. That's terrible. I mean, it was like the best food, the best service, the best ambiance in Fresno. Um, where, where is that? I'm not familiar. Um, that's on, uh, let's see, is it? It's on Herndon and Palm. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know that little corridor of restaurants? Up, up oh, there? so it's in the kind of the, I call it the nice car shopping mall area. <laughs> yeah, yes. with, the, with, the, uh, with the attached Walmart. <laughs> it's kind of a random, it's kind of a weird, interesting, you know, I like to complain about that area in particular because I... I just really don't like those big glass buildings that sit on the edge of the canyon because it just, it, you know, I'd rather look at the canyon. Um, but when I'm over there, there's so many interesting little restaurants and stuff over there. It feels kind of hidden amidst the, I know, it's hard the to mortgage find. loan places and the Lexus dealership and like all the weird random stuff over there. So Well, and the other restaurant that I, I just, you know, popped into one time just because I was starving and I wanted Mexican was in that Walmart area, right around there, is the Don Pepe Taqueria. Ah, yes, yep, that's a that's and a favorite of a lot of people. Yeah, that's a good I one. could not believe it because I was just waiting for you know my prescription at Walmart <laughs> that day, and uh, I was thinking, gosh, I just I just want to get a taco or something, and so I just walked in there, and it, first of all, it smelled amazing, and mm -hmm. there were a ton of people in there, and I thought, okay, this must be really good. And I just sat down and had a shrimp taco and it was like the most amazing shrimp taco I've ever had. So. Yeah. It feels like we're, I mean, obviously we're heavily saturated with like Mexican food options and it, it just makes it so hard to one choose one half the time. And then the <laughs> other half the time you just, you start, you like the one you like and then you neglect the 6,000 other taquerias. And so just, it feels like an impossible task to know, you know, A, where the good stuff is and B, like have the energy to expand your horizons just because there's so many options. Right. And for me, it's like I've picked a few of them and I just frequent those few and then I'm, and then I'm driving around town. I'm like, well, there's 75 others that I should, probably should try, but I, I don't know. We, I, it's, a, well, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse to have so well, many good options. Exactly. And, um, you know, I grew up in Chicago where there were very few Mexican restaurants at the time. 
And um, I had a friend who owned a grocery store in the front and then a Mexican restaurant in the back. And he and his family owned both of them. So I just, you know, from a very young age, I had this taste for Mexican. But then I lived in Dallas, working with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra for three years and just loved Tex-Mex food. Mm. Uh, So got addicted to that out there. Um, But yes, I I really appreciate all the different varieties in Fresno. And and, um, the other really good place, and I I keep forgetting the name of it, is there's so many great Thai Vietnamese places in Fresno. Mm -hmm. So I like, you know, kind of exploring and and just uh, going in with my friends and having a, a quick meal and it's always delicious, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just get such uh, good ethnic food options. Um, And I I hear people like complaining and moaning about uh, the fact that there's not more restaurants kind of like Annex Kitchen, you know, these big city kind of, of, I'm trying to use a, a word that doesn't get me in trouble, but like, kind of like, new American fancy. And, you know, and but the thing is, is we have we have not better food, but like so many options along so many you know uh, Lao food and so many great Mexican so much great Mexican food that like I I don't think we're deprived. I think it's the opposite. I think people just need to go outside of their neighborhoods more and try things. Absolutely, that, absolutely. I think that's what it is. Going out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So. One one final question before we move off food. What does Chicago Mexican food look like? Because I don't believe that there's good Mexican food in the Midwest. Am I right or wrong? <laughs> You're wrong. You're wrong. Okay. No, there's really great Mexican in uh, Chicago. Uh, there's a huge, huge Mexican population in Chicago. And so, <clears throat> yes, yes. Okay. Uh, All right. Lots well, of lots of great options there. I stand corrected. I just remember I was in... Nebraska for a, a speech tournament back when I used to do those kinds of things. And um, <laughs> we went to some Mexican food place, quote unquote, in Nebraska. And I just, just, just looked at it and I didn't eat it. Cause I just was like, this is not like, this is, this is, it's, the tortilla was like a quarter inch thick. I was like, there's something going on here. <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone, someone got the wrong memo. Um, so, so I'm so excited to have you on. I, I am the biggest classical music fan and I am, it is, it is, it is my soundtrack that I listen to throughout the day and um, classical music, I feel like um, is one of our greatest repositories for, uh, you know, genius. Uh, It is such a huge world that once you get into it, I feel like it's unending um, in the same way that, you know, literature, um, in the same way that art is. And so I'm just really excited to have you on to talk about these things. Um, and I want to talk about kind of one of the, uh, you know, more mysterious parts of classical music, which is conducting. Um, I have watched quite a few documentaries and read books. And one of my favorite documentaries is called The Art of Conducting. And it just kind of is a, a series of just clips and interviews uh, where the kind of mystery of conducting is uh, is described, and ultimately you don't leave that documentary feeling like you have much grasp on anything that's solid. You just you still feel um, this sense of like 
what is going on exactly? But what you, what you, do, what you do leave with is a sense that there is something there, um, that there is something that great conductors can do that we can't uh, readily you know, quantify or something. But, yes, yeah. but it has an energy or a force. So um, let's start with really basics. Um, okay. What is a conductor doing during a performance? And then my second question um, is, which is more important, a conductor's eyes or their baton? Okay, wow. Well, the art of conducting, it's, it's um, uh, so uh, overwhelmingly encompassing of so many uh, disciplines all at once, actually. You have to be a psychologist. You have to be uh, an incredible musician. You have to have leadership qualities. You have to uh, make decisions that everyone will disagree with <laughs> and be okay with that. Uh, you have to um, exude the music in your body. So you have to be physically comfortable with your body. You have to be extremely exposed on the podium. So we're talking any insecurity on your face, in your body language is magnified a hundred times over. And so many times in my uh, um, study of conducting, my teachers, the world-renowned conductors would say, the orchestra can smell fear. <laughs> and it, it kind of goes across the board from band conductors to, you know, uh, teaching strings for, you know, grade school kids to, to choral directors, you know, you have to have an incredible amount of confidence, uh, an incredible amount of ego. Uh, and all those things happen while you are on that little square box with that 12 inch, like not even a, you know, a quarter of a pound baton in your hand. And there's a lot of conductors also who conduct without a baton and are able to exude everything that a baton. So to answer that question, I don't think so much the baton really matters. Yes, your facial and eye expressions matter a lot, but there are some conductors who conduct with their eyes closed. So how is that being conveyed? You know, how is the music being conveyed? And so it's, it's very mysterious. <clears throat> and it, uh, it's completely a personality issue too. So you have to have a, a certain kind of personality that uh, is able to be very, very expressive and emote, you know, as well. Because there are many conductors like Pierre Boulez, you know, you don't see him emoting like you would, um, like, um, um, let's say, uh, um, the Philadelphia Orchestra conductor, who's escaping my mind at the moment, <laughs> but several other conductors, like uh, Schulte, for instance, you know, who conducted the Chicago Symphony for decades. Um, he was, you couldn't see a beat, you know, it was almost spastic on the podium. And yet he could lead a, an orchestra like no other. Um, and so then you have Pierre Boulez, who is just about beating out the time in a precise manner. And, and then the orchestra will play beautifully under him too. 
I've seen him conduct uh, the Chicago Symphony. And it's just, so it, it really is all dependent on the music, on who and what that person is bringing to the music and what their intention and goals are for this orchestra. And it depends on what orchestra you're conducting as well. You know, some, if you conducted the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, there's very little that you have to do. But in fact, you have to do a lot, lot more than you would if you were conducting, um, you know, uh, even just the, well, like the Fresno Philharmonic, <laughs> you know? Uh, there's just so many different aspects to conducting that it's not, you're not able to say, well, if you have X, Y, and Z, then, then you're a very good conductor. Or if you are able to lead and, and be musical, you're a very good conductor. There are conductors out there who do not play one single instrument and are able to conduct major symphony orchestras. There are some conductors out there who can sing perfect solfege and have perfect, uh, perfect pitch and incredible rhythm that cannot get a job conducting. So, you know, how is that? happening how it like you said how is how does this work and i would say it's just so many different factors that go into play uh and um you know i'm still exploring i'm still learning and i think uh the the vision of this age you know that the conductors the best conductors in the world are this gray-haired you know 80 year old conductors and uh in a sense, that's true because the longer you do it, the better you get at it. And it's not like, it's not like you know, you think of um, even professional musicians. You know, after they hit a certain age, like wind instruments or brass instruments, their, their embouchures are, are, you know, um, uh, they have issues with that, you know, to keep practicing, to keep, to keep up with everything and, and the nerves and, and uh, all the pressure that that involves, you know, after a while, your body just starts to feel it, you know, like an athlete. And, you know, you can keep playing and play, play some people play really well into their 80s. But as a conductor, um, you know, you see these footages of like Furtwängler, you know, and he's ba barely moving his his hands it's almost looking like he's having a, a seizure on the podium. <laughs> and yet, uh, the, the uh, Berlin Philharmonic or the Vienna Philharmonic is, is right there, has so much tremendous respect for him that there's obviously this incredible music happening, you know, in this revere for this musician on the podium. It's definitely there. And there's this incredible music making that's happening. Um, but like, uh, unlike instrumentalists, conductors cannot practice, right? We, I'm slaving, studying the score, you know, um, really looking at every single aspect of the music, being prepared as I can to rehearse and conduct the Fresno Philharmonic or any other guest conducting uh, opportunities that I have across the country. And I do not get to practice with them more than maybe a total of, let's see, five hours. That's it. That's all I get. And that's talking, that's encompassing a major symphony, like a Brahms symphony or a Beethoven symphony, or even, you know, a Mahler symphony. You still get five rehearsals, you know, just because the piece is uh, an hour and a half, like we did the, uh, in Fresno, we did the Britain's uh, War Requiem. Full chorus, 
soloists, three soloists, two orchestras, uh, a, a children's orchestra in the audience. I mean, sorry, a children's choir in the audience. And we still had only five rehearsals for that, you know, and that was it. Um, and this was a massive undertaking for the Fresno Philharmonic, but we did it and it was extremely rewarding. But uh, going back to this, this idea of, you know, you don't get to practice, it's, you know, that's why every time I'm on the podium, I'm practicing in a way. <laughs> and that's, that's really not something I wanna be sharing with everyone. But that's the reality of being a conductor is that you, uh, I don't, you know, I'm a pianist. I can sit down and practice on the piano five, six hours a day if I wanted to, if I'm preparing for a concert. But it's not like I'm a pianist and then I practice in the rehearsals and the concert. You know, mm -hmm. I could never get, I couldn't, you know, I could never be, get to the proficiency I want to do uh, to be at if that were the only time that I could practice. Yeah, it feels like, well, I mean, I have a lot to say in response to what you just said, but it feels like, you know, typical musicians, you know, their practicing careers front loaded um, that you, you know, you, you build towards a professional career, but then you have conductors who, you know, you move to that place and then you start really learning how to do it. And I, you know, it's, it blows my mind the, the kind of how the, like good wine, uh, great conductors get better as age. I'm thinking about like, um, you know, Herbert Blomstedt, who's like, I think he's 93 this year <laughs> and just, just performing at his highest. And it just, it, it, it's so fascinating to me. And I, I think in terms of, you know, the, the kind of wide range of styles, if you will, um, it reminds me of teaching in a lot of ways because uh, there's this great book um, by this somewhat spiritual writer named Parker Palmer uh, about teaching. And he talks about how um, strange it is that we have these great teachers that we can think of throughout our lives that are also wildly different in style. Um, and it really runs counter to this idea that there's like one way to teach and we just have to mechanically exactly. learn it. Um, right. But, it, but what it is, is you have teachers who discover their kind of authentic core of who they are. And once they have, are living in that truth of themselves, they could be doing any weird thing up in front of the classroom and you would resonate because they're being authentic with you. And exactly. so when I, when I watch these conductors, you know, I'm just, I, and I, I watch good ones. It always just feels like they're being authentic to who they are in that moment. Um, right. And their, and their orchestra sees that they see that. Right. And so they have that trust. Um, but my question to you now is, has conducting made you believe in telepathy? I mean, I, I, um, I, I really love John Elliott Gardner and particularly, you know, his choral stuff. And, but I read his book um, about uh, Bach and, um, you know, the kind of the, the vocal music of Bach. And he talks about conducting and he really likes this idea of like a conduit, you know, conducting, you know, electricity or something. And so it feels like right. there's this force that's moving. So it. Absolutely. It, and it's just, it's probably just 
who you are is being expressed and they can feel you in some ways. But I, it just, it just endlessly fascinates me, this process. Of right. Connection. Yeah. And it's so funny. I do believe in that, this, this power to exude who you are across a whole stage of, you know, sometimes 90 musicians, sometimes a hundred musicians. And, uh, it is incredibly powerful. And, um, you know, that's kind of, <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that really drives me or started me on this conducting route, you know, this conducting journey, uh, because I was a pianist at USC. And uh, one of the things that I had to do for my doctorate in piano performance was um, a minor in conducting. And so I put together this program of, you know, easy things like Stravinsky Symphony of Wind Instruments, which is not an easy piece, and <laughs> uh, Ligeti Fragments, which is also a very challenging piece. And, and, this, um, and I picked something really different. I picked the um, Three Penny Opera by Kurt Weill. Hmm. And, and I thought, gosh, this is such great repertoire, first of all. Very challenging where I have to do mixed meter things. You know, everything's like a three, four, two, eight, one, eight, you know, I mean, it's just uh, 16, eight to 14, eight. And then we get the seven, eight bar, you know, all the stuff that I found extremely rewarding. And, and I got right away, I got this feedback from the players who'd never seen me conduct, say, knew me as a pianist saying, you know, you really can speak to an orchestra. You can really, there's something, you know, really natural about the way you are working with, a, with all of us. And, and I thought, and when I was doing it, I remember this, and I feel this every time I'm on the podium, I feel like this incredible power. There's this incredible power that we all experience together on stage at the same time. And it's not like ego power. And I, I'm sure there are conductors out there who feel that that's, that's my ego exuding. Out. But for me, it's very much this symbiotic relationship. Like there's a synergy happening, you know? And, um, and I've seen several interviews from Muti to one of my favorite conductors is uh, Haiting, Bernard Haiting. And he was talking to the Berlin Philharmonic. Uh, he's um, doing an interview, you know? And he had just conducted them or it was doing a week with the Berlin Phil. And he's like, you know, I, I'm just being as authentic as I can. And I, I don't know, you know, I have ideas. I know they have ideas, but we are agreeing on what we're doing on the stage. You know, there's, there's never where a moment where I'm forcing them to do something that they don't want to do. And, and so that to me, says oh, well first of all so much about this conductor who's world renowned you know i mean just i love all of his beethoven symphony recordings um just this always whenever he's conducting it's always so fresh and i know members of the chicago symphony who love love playing under him and i ask them why why do you like that why do you like him you know he's well first of all he's in his 90s you know <laughs> and um and again, one of these conductors barely moving and, and I, physically, I'm saying, you know, um, you could barely see a beat, you know, you could barely see. And yet all this energy is happening. And, and when you see videos of the Brilling Phil and he uh, conducting it, you can see it happening. And, and they say, well, because he's so authentic, he's so genuine. And, and I think, well, that's, 
that's, you know, something I aspire to all the time on the podium in my work. And so I, I think that, yes, I do believe there's some sort of way that a person can uh, exude all of this energy and um, music, you know, and sometimes it's so frustrating because I, I'm a pianist and, and what I do makes sounds, right? But I, when I'm on the podium, what I do does not make a sound. It's the players that make the sound. And so I'm not, I'm never consciously aware of it, but I do get this question a lot like, Ray, have you ever conducted and worried about them coming, not coming in when you're giving them the downbeat? And, and again, like you were mentioning, this trust has to be there, you know? Um, and so that I've never thought of that, but I do have nightmares about that. <laughs> <laughs> Understandably, we all, do, you know, nightmares of, I, I, you know, I've, I've never conducted an orchestra, but I used to, in college, my uh, sport was uh, speech and debate. And so I'd memorize these uh, 10 to 15 minute speeches and perform them in auditoriums um, and with a group of people watching, whether 10 or 100. And I would just, I would have nightmares that I would forget my first line and then I would just get stuck. And then I would just, you know, I'm a red, I'm a redheaded guy. So naturally my face just gets red. Um, <laughs> and so I, yeah, I think we all have those moments. I, I do want to ask though about stubbornness. Um, there's some people that have said stubbornness is a virtue in conducting. Would you agree with that statement? Um, you know, I don't think it's stubbornness more than uh, a complete conviction of what you're doing. Of your vision of yeah, what it is. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll, I have had many players in many different orchestras say, why do you want to do that articulation like that? Or why do you want this tempo to be like that? When it clearly says to do it like this. And I have to be very strong in, in the way I feel about the music. Well, I have to have a, a very good explanation for that, for why I, you know, decided to do something differently. And and so in a way, I guess that's stubborn, but it's not really. I think it's it's stubborn, I feel like is an emotional thing. And when you're on the podium, if you let your emotions take over, <laughs> you know. I mean, there's always those uh, moments in, in Bernstein videos, you know, where he's crying on the podium and, and all of that. Emotion's fine, but I think when you're dealing with issues like that, you know, when, uh, when you're coming up against uh, somebody who doesn't uh, agree with what you're doing, I think being, having true conviction and the, giving them a reason why always uh, diffuses the situation. Yeah, I think conviction is probably a better word than stubbornness, because if you're, again, going back to this authenticity point that we were talking about, I mean, if you're really authentic and you're, and, and, and obviously, you know, well-researched in and made a decision for good reason why you want to interpret a piece the way you do, uh, I think a musician that respects the craft will understand, I'm sure. Right. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about before conducting, which is your classical music journey. Um, so uh, where, did it, where did it start for you? And I would just kind of in the midst of this, if you'd talk a little bit about um, how, you know, how education happened for you and what your view is about uh, music education these days. Wow. Well, first of all, I um, was born in Tokyo and my mother was a singer and my father was a visual artist. So arts were just, you know, in my household 
My father was sculpting in the basement, blaring classical symphonic music constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother and I were learning piano from my mother, um, and I started at the age of three. And she, she, you know, was uh, doing some recitals and things like that, but mainly she was teaching piano as a way to make money. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't even an option for me. It was like I grew a limb and that limb was music, <laughs> yes. you know. Um, and so I went, uh, I grew up in Chicago. After that, we moved to Chicago and um, I grew up in the public school system. And uh, I went to this wonderful public high school in the city and uh, they had a orchestra program. And that was the first time I had been exposed to um, playing a, you know, an option to play an instrument other than my, my piano. During all of that time before high school, I was doing piano competitions and my mother was pushing me to learn with the best teachers in Chicago. And um, so I had really a tiger mom, like, you know, uh, stage mom pushing me to become a concert pianist. That was her goal for me. You know, I wanted to be an ice skater, you know, (laughs) a professional ice skater. And uh, in sixth grade, she was like, okay, I can't afford ice skating lessons and rink time and uh, music and and piano lessons. So what are you, what are you going to do? You have to decide. And I said, well, of course I want to be a skater. I want to be an Olympic skater. And she said, okay, well, good. Cause I'm glad you decided. Cause now we're, you're just going to be playing the piano. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I gave up on that dream. Uh, but then, you know, again, uh, going back to that high school story, uh, it was the first time where the high school teacher was like, you know, I know you play piano. So I played like, it was a very good high school orchestra. Um, I played the um, nutcracker, you know, the chalesque parts and, I played percussion in the orchestra, could not follow the conductor at all. Um, And then he said, "Uh, look, I want you to learn violin because we're short violins. I said, oh, great, I'd love to. And so every time, you know, I had a study hall or whatever, I would run to the orchestra room and practice. And by the time I started, I was a sophomore, maybe by the end of junior year, I was in the first violin section. And by senior year, I was sitting for a stand next to the concertmaster. Wow. So I had such an incredible experience. They had theory classes and, and we had orchestra for most of the afternoon. By my senior year, I had lots of study hall. And so, you know, I would just practice. And uh, so then, then I got into Eastman School of Music uh, in piano performance and really didn't look back. You know, I just wanted to be a pianist. And, um, but I think right now more than ever we need music and the arts in the schools and you know it really dawned on me when i was this assistant conductor of three major orchestras uh the winnipeg symphony in canada the dallas symphony and the utah symphony uh that the assistant conductor would do these education concerts for you know 2000 students like just like we do with the fresno philharmonic the link up concerts and um it just it really made such a huge impression on me as a conductor to see the impact that going to, you know, um, Saroyan, going to all these big halls for these students, and and most of them had never seen or heard classical music before, let alone you know be a part of the concert like in the link-up concerts that we do in Fresno. 
it just had such a huge impact on me uh, that I enjoy doing that so much, as much as I do the Masterworks concerts, because I feel such a connection with the students. And I know every major orchestra that I've worked with, you know, when the students are just howling and screaming, you know, as we walk out on stage or after the concert, it's just the most incredible, rewarding experience ever. And, and I, think, uh, I think music and the arts have, have such a great positive um, input in these students. You know, they, they just, if, if we could just expose them as many times as possible, I think more of them would go into the arts. I do. Yeah, I think exposure is what you need to do with kids ultimately. And I, you know, all, all these school districts need to do is provide some buses and take a break from preparing for that stupid standardized test that they're worried about and just <laughs> give the kids opportunity. Because I, you know, it, it is an interesting thing that, you know, we're so focused on one area um, that we forget to expose them to a breadth of things. And I, it's obviously there's all these questions about funding and, you know, you know, there's schools that are redirecting their funds from music and arts to other things. And that's a political question ultimately. But I think uh, one thing that we can all agree on is that more exposure is better. Um, and, Absolutely. And, 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 and it's there and it, and it helps to also, you know, bring a community together around something uh, that we all need to value, which is, you know, uh, our, our local symphony orchestra that um, is kind of a centerpiece in a community. Right. And, you know, what's so fascinating is that if they only knew, if the, you know, government entities and, and uh, the standardized testing people, if yes. they knew that music has so much math, has so much hand-eye coordination, has so much of this community feeling, that we would be raising so many amazing people, uh, our future, future generations, would have such a wider scope to look at, options to think about. You know, when you're learning quarter notes and half notes, that's math already. And, and I could get, I could work with a three-year-old and teach them math that way, you know? And, and all this early learning process and all these standardized tests, I agree with you. I think that, you know, in, like if you were learning how to paint, you would learn perspective. You would learn that things go in a distance, but they're in actuality, they're really tiny right? A speck on the middle of the canvas. And when children see that, their perspective in their lives can change. I really do believe that. And, and I think more than ever, we really need to focus on what it is. It's not just this, oh, thing you can do on the side, and maybe you can enjoy that. It's not anything like that. It's, it's much, much more, um, there's like a blanket effect with what the arts can do. Yeah. And I, I, I like how in your story you described how, you know, you picked up violin and it became something. So it's never too late either. And I feel like a lot of parents, and maybe you can speak to this, feel like they, you know, they have to start early or it's just like a lost cause. This kind of, you know, uh, what's the word? Canard, this false story about, um, you know, that kids can't pick up something when they're 12 or 14. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, 
there are any, it's like language, first of all. Music is a language. So there are no limitations. I'm learning Italian right now. You know, I, because of my Japanese background, maybe, you know, sometimes the R's and the L's is very difficult to, you know, mm. say l'aeroporto, you know, yeah. I mean, yes, there's so many yes. R's and L's. And, and yet, you know, I'm still working on that. It's, it's, music is a language, and I think, and arts are too. I don't think it's ever too late to want to become an actor or to, to want to be a musician. And, you know, you don't know what the capability, your, your capabilities are, what the perspectives are. Maybe you're not going to be Yuja Wang, you know, you know, this concert pianist, but maybe you could start a jazz band and it could, you know, flourish. I mean, I, there are so many possibilities and endless routes you can take, journeys you can take with, with the arts that I think we limit ourselves to saying, well, that's the goal. You know, playing in the Berlin Philharmonic is the goal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. not. You can have a really fruitful career, uh, you know, working in California, working with studio musicians, or maybe, maybe not even that, in, in enjoying making music at home with your family and being able to play carols at Christmas time, you know? That's I mean? exactly what I was going to say. I mean, <laughs> in my mind, there's, I mean, there's a difference in terms of a career and a professional nature to it, but entertaining uh, folks by playing jingle bells on the piano around Christmas time versus playing a, a Beethoven sonata in front of a packed house at Carnegie Hall. I mean, those are both, they're, they're achieving the same function, which is they're, they're bringing music to a group of people. And, you know, I, I think that, and, and I feel like this is true with like things like cooking too, where we've made the professional chef, uh, you know, we've separated them so far uh, from the home cook that people feel like, well, if I can't make a Gordon Ramsay beef Wellington, then I shouldn't even try to make beef stroganoff because I, <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna grubhub my dinner tonight because I feel bad that I'm not Gordon Ramsay. You know, and it's just yeah. it's stupid. It's stupid, and it it prevents people from enjoying music in, in a limit in, in not a limited way, but a in a more amateur way that is just as enjoyable at home. No, no, I agree. I think. Um... And, and talking about cooking, I mean, what better way to, uh, to make a recipe than to divert from the actual recipe and experiment? I think people are so afraid that because they're not going to succeed, well, they shouldn't even try, right? When, when I think that that's the opposite. I think you should take risks. I agree completely. Yeah. I, um, I want to go back into conducting for a little bit. Um, what is, what does your research process look like, um, when you're planning a concert? Um, so if you pick a piece or a series of pieces, um, do you go through and listen to how they've been performed in the past? Do you start from a blank slate and just think about what you see in it? Um, do you research, uh, the composer? I mean, how, what does your process look like? Yes. Um, well, it's interesting you asked because, and we were just talking about, you know, playing carols at home is um, I'm, I'm working on a Brahms symphony right now and um, the first symphony. And so I was reading, I'm reading this biography on Brahms and I, I do like to do that. I like to, you know, find different biographies. So if I have like, I have about 10 different books on Beethoven, I always try and look for a new, you know, uh, 
way of looking at Beethoven and looking for a new book about him, a biography or a story, um, and reference that. But I'm reading about Brahms and how he really, in his, you know, uh, I would say after he's had some success, he's, he was really working with his publisher and editors about um, writing a lot of music that would be house music. They called it house music, right? Where people can just play it at home. So, and of course, some of his music is very, very difficult. Like his piano sonatas are very difficult. His chamber music is very difficult. But some of his songs, you know, uh, we don't really hear that many uh, Brahms songs, but they're more familiar, you know, easy to play. And and you think of these great symphonic, you know, composers, and 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 they were still trying at that time, right, in the 1800s, and even in the 1700s. Um, especially in the 1800s, so there were more middle class, there were more people having, you know, pianos in their homes or harpsichords or keyboards. And, um, and I, I always want to encourage people, like, you don't have to, you know, have this long-term goal, you know, you can just play for yourself too, <laughs> like we were saying. But, um, but anyway, with Brahms, I, I just find that I like to listen to different recordings of the first symphony. I think there are many wonderful interpretations of it. And then I kind of look in as I'm studying, I, I often will listen to a recording once maybe, and, and then I'll just study what's in the score, what's printed in the score, and, and just look over my notes and look over things that people have, you know, recommended or Sometimes I'll even reach out to famous, you know, my, my mentors, my, these wonderful conductors I've worked with, including, you know, the music director of the New York Philharmonic, um, Jot van Sweden, and I'll email them and I'll say, look, you know, I, I'm doing this, you know, in a month, how would you do this transition in the last moment, you know? <laughs> um, so I do lots of different kinds of research, but mainly I'm sitting in my study really just uh, engrossed in the score. And sometimes my husband and my daughter have to stop me because I could just keep going on and on and studying and skip dinner or, you know, <laughs> forget, uh, forget an appointment or something like that. So it's, it's for me, it's, it's um, I don't know, in a way it's, it's this zone, you know, I go into when I'm working and preparing for, for a concert. It's really, it's really incredible, time just flies by. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, it, because it's so similar in uh, other disciplines, you know, you have all these, you know, if you're, you know, for example, writing a book about Jane Austen or something, you can go and read, you know, all the, all the other takes on Jane Austen. But at the end of the day, the most meaningful thing you can do is a close reading from your point of view. Right. And I think, you know, especially young people, whether it's in academic disciplines or musicians, they feel like they need to you know, they, they're so absorbed in the conversation about it that we lose track of like, no, you just really need to get in and engage with the text or engage with the score and see it with your eyes in an authentic way. Um, and that's, that's hard work. Um, but I think it is probably the most meaningful work that you can do. Absolutely. Like and there are conductors out there who will look at Furt Bangler or look at, um, you know, famous conductor Carlos Kleiber, and say, "Okay, I'm going to conduct my Beethoven Fifth Symphony like just like that." You know, yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah. You know, uh, 
um, choreograph it like that. And then they get on the podium and it's falls right flat. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, you have to be really authentic when you're on the podium or at least know what you're doing um, and not just copy. Because uh, it, if I invited you to conduct the Fresno Philharmonic Yikes. and I said, <laughs> and I said, okay, this is how you move your hands, right? And you have this whole orchestra ready and all eyes on you waiting for you to give us the downbeat, give them the downbeat. And you do just physically what I say, it won't work. No. It won't work. <laughs> yeah, especially for me. I'd be terrified. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's going to be my new nightmare. Thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. So, um, now time for kind of a fun question, um, which is, you know, in, in, in piano music, um, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, okay. <laughs> which there is the, you know, box, well-tempered clavier, and then there's Beethoven's piano sonatas. And I cycle back and forth uh, between them. They're kind of my bread and butter. Um, and so my question to you is, if you were trapped on an island and you could only listen to one set of piano music, would it be Bach's or Beethoven's? Uh, I, I thought I'd have a... Um more of a range to choose from but no, you're really I'm making, making you choose. choose I'm making you choose I see um what kind of island <laughs> uh, it, it, it's tropical but okay uh, good um and am I at my age now or like you know ooh. later on in my life you know your age now so okay. if you were you know <laughs> like like cast away on a FedEx plane Okay. And just got right dropped, now. Dro dropped with a, you know, with an old school CD playing stereo. And you had two, you know, you had one of those big discs, big collections of five discs of the, all the music, which would you choose to have with you? Oh gosh. I mean, this is really, really difficult for you to ask me this. Well, you know, I got to have one <laughs> tough question, right? One tough question. Yes. Um, and and do I get to do I have the score with me or is it recorded? I will let you have the score as well. Yes. Okay. All right. That's good. Um, I would say I have to say Bach. Okay. Why? Yeah. Well, um, first of all, uh, Bach influenced so many composers, including Beethoven, and so everything that Beethoven writes in his sonatas have uh, Bach in them. You know, all this counterpoint. Um, but with Bach, I feel like, um, there's, there's so, so many, it's like a mathematical puzzle, his preludes and fugues. And I feel that that would keep me sane. I think Beethoven, after a while, I would be so frustrated because I'd <laughs> want to play them. <laughs> and frankly, seriously, I know this is probably sacrilege to say, but I think the Bach preludes and fugues are much harder to play than the Beethoven sonatas. Well, didn't, didn't Beethoven had a hard time with counterpoint when he was learning, right? I mean, that's, that's my understanding. And what the hell is counterpoint? Can you even explain that? I feel like that took, I, I don't really understand what it is. Yeah, so, so it's a way for, well, it started in the Renaissance, you know, um, before, uh, um, polyphony. So we had, you had, you have two lines and there's, 
there's these rules you have to do, like you can't do parallel fifths, you can't do parallel fourths, and you have to be able to put two lines together where it makes almost like a harmonic sense, but you only have two lines. And so it's this puzzle, it's like a Sudoku puzzle or something, you know, you have to be able to combine all of these notes together in a way, in different ways, combinations, to make it equal something, you know? So you have to have these intervals that are into play, uh, interplay with each other throughout the lines. That's kind of a, an easy way to do it, to say, you know, exactly what it is. But for me, it's, <clears throat> Bach was a genius at that, and his preludes and fugues are that. It is all counterpoint. It is all these mathematical rules, but yet he's able to write gorgeous, gorgeous melodies. And it is kind of, you have to write these melodies out, and then you have to use these, the counterpoint, which is the second line, to counteract that, or four lines, or five lines, you know. And so I think if I were on a desert island, I could look at that forever and try and figure out how he did that. You know, and then either try and emulate that or memorize it without having a piano there. Do I have a piano there? Oh man, we just keep adding objects to <laughs> Desert Island. It's it's gonna it's there's gonna be a city pretty soon if we keep adding. <laughs> I you know, and I go back and forth as well. Um, for me, this uh, uh, these I, I forget who put them out this year. Um, Daniel, what's his last name? Barenboom. Uh, yeah, his. Um, he put out the the big collection of the Beethoven's piano sonatas. And I've just been on a, for whatever reason of late, the uh, Beethoven's piano sonatas has just been my, I don't know if it's COVID times, but I, I just having them on in the background has been kind of like my rhythm these days. But um, yeah, on a desert island, it would be a tough call. So I, yeah. I, I asked that question to give you anxiety, most of all. Oh, okay. So, no, that was fun. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's... <clears throat> finish by talking about um, kind of recommendations in some way. Um, let's start by talking about um, conductors and, you know, conductors that uh, you've looked to for inspiration or direction um, and just favorite conductors to watch and who you're excited on your, you know, whatever it is, your Apple music stream when you see that they're uh, coming out with a new uh, production. Um, yes. Okay. So. Um... I know this list things are not fun because then you feel like you forget somebody, but maybe right, and, I, and I don't mean to, you know, yeah, it's incomplete. <clears throat> just kind of who comes to your mind. Sure. Well, one of the mentors, uh, one of my mentors is Marin Alsop and she's conducting all over the world. I mean, her schedule is like booked up five years in advance. You know, she um, is the uh, music director of the Baltimore symphony um, and just got a position with uh, an orchestra in Berlin. She used to be the, she was a conductor emeritus of the Sam, uh, Sao Paulo uh, Symphony Orchestra down there. And um, every time I, I watch her or um, go to her concerts, she was just at Ravinia a couple summers ago and she did a Mahler Symphony. <clears throat> I'm, I'm always inspired by what she brings uh, on the podium. Of course, just incredible technique and musicality, but just some really interesting ideas, you know, how she presents the soloists. Like I remember the soloists in, in the Mahler Symphony came out without shoes and walked down the aisle as they were singing, 
you know, in a Mahler symphony. That that just doesn't happen, you know. <laughs> like she breaks spears. She she was one of the first women to have a major symphony orchestra in the United States, and and I'm just so lucky to have her as my mentor. So she's definitely one I look for uh, constantly in performances. And what's amazing is like. I'll ask her how she did the War Requiem, and she has done these major pieces. And she'll come back with an email within 24 hours saying, you should do this, 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 and this. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. Um, and then the other conductor I mentioned earlier is Bernard Heitink. I think he's a phenomenal musician. I, and I had the privilege of doing a Zoom call with him last year. And... Uh, so, uh, you know, asked him questions. And, and one of the things that really struck me about him is, you know, again, world renowned, just a, an incredible conductor, uh, one that will live, you know, will be like the Furtwängler of, you know, the 20th, 20th century. And, and um, he says, you know, we asked him, Maestro, do you have any regrets? Like, did you make any mistakes? And he said, I made so many. And I have so many regrets, <laughs> things I shouldn't have done, things I, you know, could have done. And, and to hear him say that is so, I don't know, it's just humbling, you know, to hear him say that. Um, and the other conductor I absolutely love, and he's definitely aging now, is Seiji Ozawa. I find him to be ex extremely uh, um, expressive and and I'm just in awe that he memorizes every single score that he's ever conducted. Um, and uh, just have so much respect for him. Um, yeah. So, so I just, I, a, a question just came to me that I, I realized I didn't know the answer. Have you ever conducted um, uh, with an, or in an opera before? Um, I have not, actually. Is yeah. that something that you'd be interested in? Absolutely. In fact, I'm doing an opera this fall, of all things. Okay. Um, what, yeah. Which one? Um, Trouble in Tahiti. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not familiar. By, by Leonard Bernstein. Uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, yes. so what, what is your, what is your, uh, what, what, from what your understanding is, what, what is, how is conducting different um, with, uh, with an opera? Yeah, um, well, you know, I think being a pianist, I have a, a really big advantage in that there are, you know, piano reductions of all the operas. And, and I've had much, much experience I, uh, playing for singers, you know. Um, so I've done that a lot uh, in my background. So I don't feel like uh, too intimidated by opera. I've just, just never gone down that route and have never really, you know, pursued um doing opera so much um and you know i have to say i i would love to do contemporary opera because the operas of puccini they're gorgeous 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 music wagner everything um and one of my dreams is to do the whole uh ring cycle of wagner all oh, 21 wow. hours of it you know <laughs> yes that would be amazing um and my German's okay, my Italian I'm working on. <laughs> but, you know, I find so many of those uh, 19th uh, century operas to be so misogynistic. Yeah. You know, and it really bothers me. It really does. And so I think that's maybe subconsciously why I haven't really pursued that. You know, the women's always like um, in dire straits or in situations where they have to commit suicide or, 
yeah. you know, La Bohème, La Bohème, she, you know, she succumbs to illness. I mean, come on, you know, yeah. <laughs> why, why can't the man, you know, <laughs> suffer and die once in a while? Uh, sorry. There's, it's got to be tempting <laughs> to want to do some like, uh, gosh, I just watched, you know, one of the things that I've been doing these days is I just recently discovered uh, Opera Vision on YouTube. Um, and they put out some great ones and they did for the holidays, they did a kind of a fundraiser where they did the magic flute. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just so amazing. I, and I, I, I honestly think opera is one of the most underrated arts that our culture has. And that I think is so stereotyped and so ignored by the mainstream culture. And that's so ironic given that it is one of the most complete art forms there is and it's just so amazing that well, a, you know, a well done exactly. opera is just is just a feat of artistic excellence you know what i mean <laughs> and that's wagner right there he you know he was like this is this is the whole of the art and the music is together and um that was his philosophy but anyway well uh, i'm looking forward to uh the, where 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 is your opera did you say where it was going to be performed no, um, it's with the Reno Chamber Orchestra. Okay. Yeah. So on the same program, I'll be doing Appalachian Spring with a full ballet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay. Ballet road, and road opera. Trip. All at once. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're going to get a Fresno bus going on a road trip. Um, Great. Well, so let's finish with books, which is always my favorite thing to talk about. Um, and so before we start recording, I mentioned that I'm a big fan of uh, classical biographies and um, but there's, I'm, there's a whole world of uh, great books about classical music. What are some of your favorites? Sure. Um, well, one that I highly recommend is um, this one called Elgar as I Knew Him. And it's by William H. Reed, R-E-E-D. And, uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated by Elgar. Um, and... Uh, so I discovered this book through, I don't know, some, some article I was reading. And they said, uh, you know, this would be a really good account of a violinist, William Reed, who played under Elgar and uh, formed a very, very close relationship with him. And so it's kind of like this, um, uh, you know, biography on Elgar as seen through this violinist and their close relationship. And I, I found it to be so inspiring. First of all, you know, to, because I have such high regard for Elgar, I, you know, I just thought to read someone else's account of a personal relationship with him just made him more human to me, you know, yeah. and, and brought him down from this pedestal for me and showed me so many of his vulnerabilities and how it's really displayed in his music. So that was enlightening. The other book I really recommend is Chopin's Piano uh, by Paul Kildea, K-I-L-D-E-A. And it's about uh, the Bauza piano um, from Spain that Chopin wrote his 24 preludes on and really transformed piano music from then on, you know, historically. After those piano preludes were written, it was like, a whole new world opened up in the piano literature. And to follow, it's kind of like the red violin, you know, the movie where you follow this instrument through decades and centuries. And so Chopin's piano um, uh, 
was, you know, origin, it's, it's a Bowser piano that's like a Steinway, it's a brand. And um, how it went through, you know, Chopin's hands to the Nazis um, in 1940s, uh, recovered in, the, in New York, um, was played by the famous uh, keyboardist Wanda Landowski. And um, yeah, and so it, it shows, you know, all the transformations or places <laughs> that this piano had been to, had gone through. <clears throat> and then my favorite ultimate uh, uh, biography that I just finished, it's called Songs of the Unsung about uh, the jazz pianist and arranger, Horace uh, Tapscott from Los Angeles. Do you know him? I don't know him. Uh, he's an African-American pianist who started, at, well, you know, just uh, played everything. He was uh, just an all-encompassing jazz musician who um, started the orchestra, uh, the People's um, Pan-African Orchestra, A-R-K-S-T-R-A. And um, it's just an incredible account of, um, you know, of the multi-generations of musicians that he influenced in his uh, outlook of community, outlook on music, and um, really facing adversity, not with violence and not with protests, but just with music. Uh, it's, it's just so amazingly powerful. I, and I find, that, I find that from coming from a classical background, really not, um, I mean, I know jazz, I know blues and all that, but uh, to read about somebody who made such an impactful uh, way in not just music, but in society is just really fascinating. And um, he died in the early 90s, I believe, or yeah, something like that. Wow, those are great recommendations. Thank you. Um, to close up, where can we find uh, what's going on with your work and, as well as the Fresno Phil? Well, please watch our next um, Masterworks digital series, which is happening February 20th, Saturday, February 20th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It will be on our YouTube page and our um, Facebook page, Fresno Phil, uh, but also on our website, fresnophil.org. Uh, so please look out for that. And then this Saturday, tomorrow, we are doing a um, stay tuned with the composer Adolphus Hale Stork. And then next Saturday, uh, February 13th, we're doing, I'm uh, interviewing, uh, stay tuned is an interview with myself and the composer on our series, uh, another African-American composer named Jasmine Barnes. So lots going on. So please look at our website for more information. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the unintentional, wonderful things is the digitization of a lot of things. Um, you know, obviously we all want to be back in person, um, but there's been so many great things put on YouTube. and. I've been keeping up with your guys' stuff and just loving all of the content that we have at home. Obviously, the negative of that is, right, is, you know, the difficulties that the arts are facing uh, right. now, right now with the pandemic. But uh, hopefully when I, um, when I organize this uh, bus tour to Reno, everything, <laughs> will be, everything will be back and in order uh, uh, to see uh, some opera in person. That would be a huge pleasure. So thank you so much Great. for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jordan. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be with Jim Boren, the former executive editor of the Fresno Bee, which will drop next week. 
Have a great rest of your week and see you next time.